Nebraska News Service. Hello, and welcome to Nebraska's Racial Past and Present Podcast. Here we'll take a look at race in Nebraska and explore how we are still surrounded by racial injustice today. We'll dive into the racial history of indigenous and black populations, the institutions that have disproportionately held these populations back, and the fight against racism today. For this episode, we spoke with Ed Zimmer, the former Lincoln-Lancaster County Planning Department's Historic Preservation Planner. Zimmer spoke on the history of racial redlining as it pertains to Lincoln. We also talked with Lori Seibel, the president and CEO of the Community Health Endowment of Lincoln. Seibel broke down how poverty plays a part in redlining and how communities in poverty can be improved today in Nebraska. Let's begin by defining the term redlining. Redlining's the practice in government policy and, and banking and real estate funding, particularly of differentiating areas of a, a city and urban area. And the banker's point of view, I think, suitability for making mortgage loans there. It's the American dream, owning your own home. We all know affording it has become more difficult over the years, but for some people, affording it isn't the problem. Their race is. Uh, yeah, every time I apply, I get tuned down. The practice of redlining came out of race covenants or race restrictions that were built into deeds. In Lincoln, it was first seen in 1916. Developers like the Wood Brothers, who developed property on Sheridan Boulevard, put restrictions in their housing deeds by saying that the property could not be owned or occupied by anyone other than members of the Caucasian race unless they were black servants of the house. These covenants excluded black people from purchasing homes in certain areas of town and pushed them into downtown. That was a fairly common thing across the country that hadn't ever been used until 1916. There weren't Jim Crow laws that I'd ever found. There wasn't local municipalities backing segregation. But some of the developers were starting to use these clauses. At about the same time, the second Ku Klux Klan was rising. It had a strong presence in Lincoln some of the 1920s, while families, African-American families were dispersed where other poor families lived, typically on every side of downtown. What happens then with redlining is that it becomes more institutionalized, much broader. New Deal policies in the Federal Housing Administration, which arose in the mid-1930s, changed the accessibility of mortgage loans through these redlining maps. These maps categorize portions of the city by desirability from best to hazardous. They outlined where minorities were excluded from purchasing land. The best areas to live were where only white people lived. The most hazardous areas on the redlining maps were where minorities lived. At the same moment that for other families, mortgages and the American dream of home ownership was becoming more accessible, it was made less accessible for their American um, and other families of color. Redlining was reflective of the racial discrimination and other practices that permeated the Lincoln community and the rest of the United States. In the early 20th century, up to the 1930s, African Americans as well as other immigrant families lived on every side of downtown. It became the assigned neighborhoods because of how the redlining maps were drawn. Up until the 1960s, new families coming to Lincoln were only offered housing in this segregated neighborhood just east of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, in what is called Malone neighborhood today. Everything else being equal, there are people who, because they are black, are being denied 
things to which they have a right and to which they would get if they were otherwise. Secondly, He's talking about home mortgages, and he called the evidence irrefutable, as did the president of the NAACP. I don't have to bite my tongue. There is racial prejudice and bias all across this country as it relates to lending practices. It was a policy and a practice in support of the white power structure of America. It was a practice to deny the benefits of expanded housing opportunity to some families and offer it to others. When you read the sources on Lincoln in the 30s, during the New Deal, everybody was unemployed. So there were work relief programs for all kinds of people, including writers, poets, and artists. And there are some very uh, excellent and interesting publications by writers about conditions in uh, Nebraska and and Lincoln in that era. There's a book called Negroes in Nebraska, published in 1940, sponsored by the Urban League of Omaha, looking at race relations community or statewide, identifies as the greatest problem facing African-American families was they're only allowed to live in racially restricted or quality neighborhoods with poor housing opportunity and often couldn't even own the housing there. It's owned by others because they couldn't get mortgages through the red line practices. The racial pattern of residence became institutionalized by the 1960s because of these redlining maps, the effects of which are still deeply rooted in society. The effects are evident in public education because in many places in the United States, schools are funded by property taxes. When the property value of the homes in a school's neighborhood are low, the school will not be as well-funded compared to a school in a wealthy neighborhood. And if you've created areas that are winners and losers in property tax, if you allow your school districts to be determined by those same boundaries, um, you'll have less well-funded schools in neighborhoods that you created through this as well as other practices. I served on the school board in Lincoln, and one of the Blessings and one of the things we have to always defend in Lincoln is we have a school district that draws up from the whole community. And so the funding is not coming out of the uh, neighborhood for Elliott School or Clinton School. It's coming out of the whole community. And then there's a funding formula built in so the schools that have greater needs get greater funding. That's how it ought to be done. That's not how it can be done if all of your poverty is in one school district and your wealth is in the area surrounding it. We also spoke with Lori Seibel. Seibel discussed how poverty was birthed out of race covenants and racial redlining in the 1900s. She shared insight into what can be done today. So if there's poverty in a neighborhood, um, that usually causes a lot of other things to go wrong. Rarely does poverty exist in isolation. And so when we look at something like redline and the impact that it's had on neighborhoods and in creating poverty, um, what redlining basically did was shut people out of um, the suburbia housing market. And so um, white residents could move there, they could buy houses, they could build wealth. And of course that created created home equity, which is in many people's um, situation, uh, the biggest asset they'll ever have. And so what that did cause for people who weren't able to purchase homes was kind of the starting over with every generation. Um, people were having to pay, buy, you know, pay for rent. They were having to 
not be able to move to parts of the community where perhaps there was greater opportunity for them. And so while white citizens were accumulating advantage by virtue of these opportunities they were given, um, people of color were accumulating disadvantage. The effects of redlining are lasting, according to Seibel. Those disparities manifest themselves in different areas of life. In her research, she's found that your brain is wired between the ages of zero and three. If there's a lot of what Seibel calls toxic childhood stress, it wires your brain to create poor outcomes both in education and employment and overall basic health status. When you're living in a, in a poor house or you're living in a house where there's a lot of perhaps um, um, an inability to, to achieve in the same way other parts of the community are. So that may be poverty. That may be um, living in a home that has uh, lack of food. That may be even more difficult things like uh, someone who's having someone in your family who's incarcerated or having some kind of abuse in a household. All of those things have such an influence on the wiring that a brain, the brain of a child. And while you may not see it at the time, that zero to three, it manifests itself further down the road. And so what we have to do as a community in many of these areas that are affected by poverty and these other issues and that were originally impacted by redlining for people of color and low-income populations is really shift some of our focus to understanding brain science and what happens to those very youngest children. Because we can't expect to solve problems if we don't start at the root of the problem. And um, that's really hard work. Hard work, Seibel says, but work that is attainable. I think we have to, as a community, have a willingness to act. We have to have a willingness to acknowledge, and then we have a willingness to do something about it. And I always say, so what are you going to do now with what you now know? So if we're learning the impacts of redlining, if we're learning the impacts of poverty, if they're clearly laid out in front of us, the question is not just that what we know, the question is what we're going to do with that. And that's the step that we have to be all willing to take. It's not just what you know, it's what you do with what you now know. A huge thank you to Ed Zimmer and Lori Seibel for chatting with us. Join us in our next episode on Race Today in Nebraska and the push for equality. For Nebraska's racial past and present, I'm Brenda Maitre and Alara.